Dr. Michael Roizen. Dr. Michael Roizen. You, the Owner's Manual Radio Show. You're listening to You, the Owner's Manual Radio Podcast on Radio MD. What a great outlet that is. You should always find physicians at that outlet or iHeart or wherever you download us from. Thank you for doing that. We have a great, wonderful interview E today. Dr. Raju, R-A-J-U, his Twitter at R-A-J-U Brain Lab, obviously we're going to talk about something relating to the brain, is a associate director of the Medical Scientist Training Program, MSTP, which means he's really good. The MSTP students are the best in medicine. I'll get to that in a little bit. But he also is director of the Pediatric Neurology Residency Program and co-director of the Children's Brain and Spinal Tumor Center at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. You want to get in touch with him at Raju, R-A-J-U, Brain, B-R-A-I-N, Lab, is the Twitter again. We, as usual, are brought to you by the Longevity Playbook, longevityplaybook.com, and Life's First Naturals. Life's First Naturals are the makers of True Biotics and Bovine Colostrum. You can go to their website, see their randomized, double-blind, controlled studies on where those are appropriate and why. They have a special true biotic for vaginal and urinary tract health and another one for bone health. And they combine them both in a women's health probiotic. Dr. Raju trained at some of the best places in the world at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. He did his pediatric residency at a relatively inferior compared to all the other places he went, Columbia Presbyterian in New York, but then did a neurology fellowship at Boston Children's Hospital and a postdoc work at Memorial Sloan Kettering. He is at, as I said, Mount Sinai now. His area is on how to get past if I can use that, the blood-brain barrier to get to tumors in a specific way and in learning from that how to treat other, maybe how to treat other neurologic diseases. Dr. Raju, thank you for coming on. First of all, tell us what the blood-brain barrier is and why it's so important in treating neurologic disease. Thank you, Dr. Roizen. It's a pleasure to be here. So, you know, I'm biased, but I think the brain is the most important organ. One of the things that our body does to protect the brain is we have this barrier. It's known as the blood-brain barrier that protects the brain from having harmful things like toxins or infections from getting into the brain. Otherwise, if you can imagine, if the brain's affected, you don't know what's going on. But at the same time, it also prevents things that the brain needs from leaking out. And that's a good thing that we all have. Leaking into the brain as well as leaking out? Correct. Because the brain, the way its energy is, it uses energy is slightly different than the rest of the body. So there's a what's called a homeostasis or a, a balance that has to be maintained. And if you don't keep certain things in the brain as well, then what will happen is that the brain won't function well. It's a two-way street. but 
when you want to treat diseases in the brain, such as brain tumors or other types of cancers that metastasize to the brain, the problem is you have to use much higher doses of drugs or therapies because that barrier is so protective to get enough drug to that location, you have to use enough dose that basically the body, the rest of the body's organs usually can't handle it. So that dose is toxic to the rest of the body and much of it doesn't get to the brain. That's a normal protective mechanism that we have. Is that the understanding? That's right. And usually it's toxic, those drugs, because we have to use such high doses to get it past the, into the brain. And it's those high doses that are really toxic. Now, when I was at NIH way back when, and I should say this is the forerunner of the MSTP programs, was really the what we called the Green Beret at NIH, which was during the Vietnam era and a little before that, if you wanted to not get closer to Vietnam than Bethesda, Maryland, you competed for positions at NIH in the research laboratories. The sequence after that is what we call the MSTP programs, Medical Scientist Training Program, where the elites of America train and the elite medical students compete for that and get their full boat paid for even at very expensive medical schools for both MD and PhD work and get a stipend as well. I know about it not only because I was at the University of Chicago and and worked and taught with students in that program, but also because my son was an MSTP and trained at the Children's Hospital Philadelphia and still is there. But in any case, so I have a, a fondness for that. The real reason I was going into that was When we were at NIH, the way the lab next to ours, I was in a Copen and Axelrod's lab then, but the lab next to ours was involved in creating dementia. And the way they did that was by giving coconut oil to break down the blood-brain barrier, and then they'd give an infection in the animal's paw, and the animals would develop inability to to follow mazes, et cetera. They would develop dementia. So what do you use now to break down the blood-brain barrier? And can you use it in specific ways so it only lets in specific drugs? Yeah. So there's many ways you can break the blood-brain barrier. So some are chemicals, such as the ones that you mentioned, but you can imagine that that's very toxic, right? Because if you had don't have a way to control where in the brain that barrier is disrupted, A lot of bad things can go in, and a lot of good things you want to keep there go out. There are other strategies people have used. For example, people have thought about ways that you can put catheters, like basically a little tube directly to the site within the brain that you want something delivered. You can imagine that's very surgically, very invasive. And a third way over the last two decades or so is people have been focusing on things called focused ultrasound, so ultrasound waves at the site that you want, you can maybe disrupt that barrier and then you can sneak stuff in like drugs. But again, it's also very disruptive because still some things can come out and other things can sneak into the brain. So an ideal way, and one of the things we've focused the last several years of our research program is, can you get things into the brain only at the sites where the disease is 
without actually disrupting that barrier, that blood-brain barrier. So I should say that this is a very important topic in research, one that is funded by the National Cancer Institute and others at the Icon School of Medicine where Dr. Raja is. So what's the answer to it? Can you get specific areas of blood-brain barrier that will let only drugs in? The main focus of our recent publication in Nature Materials was essentially that we took a step back and said, how does the body normally get things into the brain exactly where it wants to go? And the answer to that question is, you know, the, the one system that we have is the immune system, which is very specific. So if you had like, a, let's say an infection or inflammation or an injury somewhere in the body or even in the brain, the immune system doesn't just send immune cells everywhere throughout the body. It has a way to home in to that area. And the way it homes in to that area is that the blood vessels at those sites of injury, inflammation, or infection get inflamed or activated. And they express certain proteins of which one of the ones that we're most interested in is one called P-selectin. And that's the homing receptor that white blood cells use to go to only where they need to go. Is there a way of tying the drug to the P-selectin? Is that how you do this? or? Yeah, it's kind of the other side. So the P-selectin is on the blood vessel where the site of the disease is. And the white blood cell has a ligand for that receptor known as PSGL1, and that's how they localize to that site. What we found out through my collaborator, Dr. Daniel Heller at Memorial Sloan Kettering and Cancer Center, is that we were working on a nanoparticle strategy. And what nanoparticles are, these very tiny particles that you can maybe cargo or put drugs or drug payloads, kind of like a Trojan horse, and basically deliver drugs based on where that nanoparticle has an affinity. And it ends up that the structural scaffold of this nanoparticle is a simple sugar that you find in the Sea of Japan in brown algae. It's known as fucoidin. And it ends up that fucoidin, you can actually buy this in a health supplement store. People have ingested this for health benefits that are not clear as to whether they're beneficial, but it's safe. And what we learned is that that sugar, that simple sugar, fucoidin, is what binds to P-selectin. It has the same affinity in the nanomolar range as what the normal white blood cell ligand for P-selectin is. And so that's our targeting moiety or how we think we can now carry drugs to the site. So this is a already inflamed site. And what you're doing is you spot the inflammation with a key, if you will. It's a lock and key system with a key that just goes to that already inflamed site. Is that correct? And that key carries the drug. That's correct. Yeah. I've got to ask you what other sugars you looked at. The Japanese have been famous at synthesizing alternative sugars. So triolose and allulose, which are found in, I think they're just raisins and dates and some, no one ever worried about them because no one could synthesize them, but the Japanese have come up with synthetic processes. Is this a synthetic sugar or is this a natural sugar? It's a natural one. It's a sulfated polysaccharide that gets broken down in your gut if you were to ingest it. And 
for reasons that are still mysterious to me, I don't know why a sugar from a algae in the Sea of Japan happens to have a structural similarity to something on a white blood cell that mice and humans have that binds P-selectin. So that is a mystery still to us. But we leveraged the fact that there was this very, very strong affinity, and it was a specific affinity. How did you find this affinity? Was it well known, or did you discover it, or how, how many experiments did it take you to find it? So this is really a collaborative effort. So Dr. Daniel Heller is a chemical biologist who plays around with nanomedicine strategies of different cargo-type vehicles, like these nanoparticles. And there was some published literature that there was affinity to it, but nobody really knew how to make them into drug-carrying molecules, because the sugar itself is a very linear, layered kind of structure. But it ends up, it's, it's a very simple system, and I, I think simply, so that if you were to like mix basically the sugar with certain hydrophobic small molecule drugs, it's the natural hydrophobic or basically water-removing affinity that excludes out everything else so that basically the sugar just wraps around the drug. So we should say what hydrophobic is, it is water excluding in, in this sense, okay? So the, the drugs want to, like, they don't just like sitting around in solutions. They have to kind of either aggregate or they kind of dissolve and break up. But what happens is by excluding water, they get protected together on the inside of this basically sugar coating. And that is how these nanoparticles, which are about 80 nanometers in size, very tiny. Now, you're using this experimentally, I understand, in some, are you, have you progressed to patients with medulloblastoma? So tell us what medulloblastoma is and why it's such a important for obviously the patient who gets it. Yeah. So medulloblastoma is a type of pediatric brain tumor. It's the most common malignant or aggressive brain tumor in children. Fortunately, there aren't that many children with it, but still close to 400, 500 children a year in the United States get diagnosed with it. And the, our drug delivery approach, although our paper focuses on medulloblastoma, we think that it's applicable to all kinds of brain tumors, gliomas, pediatric as well as adult, because it's all not about necessarily the brain tumor or the disease. It's about those blood vessels that are at the site of the disease. And that's where the P-selectin is. So this is kind of a platform for drug therapy for the brain. Correct. And not beyond the brain too, but we're focusing on the brain because it's such a big hurdle for us. The most interesting thing that we've gotten asked now is how expensive is this Japanese algae and are we going to run out of it or can you culture it elsewhere? Yeah, luckily there's there's a lot of algae in the sea. <laughs> That's a good thing. There's actually a company out of Australia that actually um, synthesizes, extracts it from the algae and actually makes it ingestible. So that's why we find it in these health nutrition stores all around the country and the world. The important thing about it is that these drug delivery nanoparticles, it's not that most of it is the algae or the sugar. It's actually most of it is still the drug. In fact, only about 30% of the whole thing is the sugar. So that's what's unique is that we not only can target this Trojan horse type of delivery vehicle to the site where we want it, we can actually put higher amounts of the drug into this package. So you can actually 
increase the specificity of what you're attacking, that is the tumor, because of this. Correct. And at the second time, you have a second nice benefit, which is that if you could target it to where you want it to go, then normally when we give drugs, they don't just only go where you go. They go to the other organs in our body, right? The liver, the kidneys, the heart. But by getting more of it there, we're also delivering less to those normal organs and we spare this toxicity. Now, one of the places where inflammation occurs, and you'll have to tell me if P-selectins are there as well, is in blood vessels where there are, in fact, what we call plaque. And as someone vitally interested in plaque in uh, his blood vessels, does this sugar also go there? Yeah, that's a great point. So the other normal place where P-selectin can be found is what are known as activated platelets. So these are little parts of our bloodstream that where we clot, where blood clots basically, and that they can include plaques that you mentioned. We do know that there is actually an FDA approved drug that blocks P-selectin. That's been FDA approved since 2019, and it's used in sickle cell crisis for pain crisis. And we do know that when you block P-selectin at those sites of activated, that, that's safe. So at least our analogy is that if we were to deliver drugs that bind P-selectin at these doses, that we think it's also going to be safe because the platelets that are activated have that. So maybe you could dissolve plaque. <laughs> With the right drug cargo that's inside. That's correct. Yeah. So this is really a platform that you've developed that might be used for other things than just the pediatric or even adult brain tumors. That's the excitement of it, isn't it? Exactly. You know, one other thing we learned is that, and again, this was not our work, 20 years ago, before we, way before we started this, somebody at the Washington University in St. Louis showed that if you took brain tumor models in a mouse or a rodent, and you radiated that brain tumor model, what happened was the blood vessels at the brain tumor upregulated P-selectin, but normal blood vessels didn't. The reason that's really translationally useful is that brain tumor patients get radiation. So it's a way that you don't have to, like when you do a clinical trial, you don't have to say you get this or that. It's more, you're going to get your radiation, but now can we figure out a way to get drugs better using that increased P-selectin through radiation? So that's one advantage that we learned. But the platform is based on this idea that white blood cells or immune cells know how to get to where they need to go. So there's other brain disorders where there's normally inflammation. So stroke, multiple sclerosis, focal epilepsy, they've all have evidence of inflammation and they have P-selectin there. So we think that we might have a platform where we can even deliver drugs to non-tumor situations where we can, again, spare the body a lot of the side effects of drugs by getting more of the drug exactly where we want it to go. And that's what's really exciting. I agree with you. So this is brilliant work. I'm in awe of it. Now, I'm going to talk about something very simple. Are you involved as the associate director? You must be involved in recruiting medical students for the MSTP program. So I'm going to tell you when my son was being recruited at Duke, he got to meet with Coach K. So they had the students. I mean, you know, you'd think the students would be at uh, WashU in St. Louis. It was a couple Nobel Prize winners and as was at University of Washington in Seattle. 
So what do you do at Mount Sinai to recruit? What's the, the thrill? Is it going to a Knicks game or what is the thrill? Well, so I was a beneficiary of the MSTP program. I trained at one at the University of Pennsylvania. I kind of feel the reason I do this is there's wonderful science out there and there's wonderful clinicians out there. But I still think that we don't do as great a job. All these wonderful discoveries at the bench or in the lab, translating them as officially as we can. So I think the MSTP program is really useful for maybe bridging that translational gap that sometimes can feel like a, a canyon. When I think about New York City, which you know I've lived here close to 20 years now, I mean, it's New York City. That's what I, <laughs> the most, in my opinion, the most exciting city in the world. And you can do anything here as well. You can do exciting science and, and take care of a lot of patients who need it. So the, the point of this is there are, this is the best of the human capital in medicine, and it's the recruiting of it to develop it for this translational work. So congratulations. Thank you for doing this. I was going to say, do they get to meet with Carl Icahn? I assume uh, he's still alive, but he is the uh, name on the Mount Sinai, the Icon School of Medicine. You can get to Dr. Raju Brain Lab, R-A-J-U Brain Lab at Raju Brain Lab is the Twitter. Thanks very much. We, as usual, are sponsored by Lice First Naturals, the producer of both bovine colostrum and True Biotics. You can find their specific TrueBiotic formula on their website and why they do that, randomized double-blind studies looking at specifically vaginal or urinary health or bone health and how they've combined those, as well as at the work on bovine colostrum, preventing the immune dysfunction of the gut and leaky gut after extreme exercise, as well as preventing upper respiratory infections, at least in Italian soccer players in whom the double-blind studies were done. That's at lifefirstnaturals.com. Dr. Raju, I want to thank you very much for being, this is, I've written a brilliant doc and great interviewee. So thank you. You did sensational. I hope all of you have learned as much about this topic, the blood-brain barrier, targeting inflammation and using a simple sugar from seaweed off the Japanese coast and how it's already being sold in health food stores. So that makes it available and useful and probably much less expensive to start to work with from a raw material sense. Thanks very much. By the way, next week, maybe we'll talk about the Japanese scientists' work on allulose and triolose and how that may be a way of combating type 2 diabetes, those sugars, specifically. In the meantime, thanks for downloading us. Do tell your friends about us. 50,000 of you a week can't all be wrong, so thanks again. And as you can tell, if you have anyone who needs something relating to inflammation in the brain, especially a pediatric patient, Dr. Raju is at R-A-J-U Brain Lab at Raju Brain Lab would be a great way of starting the conversation. Thanks again.